All right, who bought a Powerball ticket a couple weeks ago? Curtis and I. Maybe you did too. I don't know, it felt sort of fun to be part of the giant $2 billion prize. We won $4, by the way. And as Curtis and I waited for our numbers to be called, we wondered together, how many prayers do you think God fielded on this? Now, more seriously, I remember a John Oliver segment from a number of years ago where he talked about the lottery, about the way it pretends at being a financial uh, buffer for the education system and actually creates a whole host of challenges in under-resourced communities and communities of color, where what is needed is a financial support for the community and what is instead available for them are Powerball prayers. Many of us in our community have experienced some sort of financial anxiety, and today I want us to explore that together. What do we do when we realize we're in a season where joyful and sustainable seems unrealistic because our financial anxiety is running high. What do we do when we're saying Powerball prayers and mean it? Because there really isn't enough. And maybe we feel this for ourselves. We might also feel this for others. There are people we know in situations that are not quick fixes, where we see their financial struggles and we realize it's bound to be a long-term experience and we can't solve it for them. This is our second week in a little series where we're exploring something we value a lot as a church, that the way in which we would live would be joyful and sustainable. Jesus comes offering life, and we have a culture that says we have to be striving and hustling and eking out and scrambling. And part of what trust looks like, the kind of trust we are practicing that is put specifically and as best we can exclusively in God, That trust sometimes just looks like allowing our lives to be formed into joyful and sustainable rhythms. There's a lie that joyful, sustainable lives are only achieved by those who've mastered their finances. It's a reward for financial stability or affluence. Joyful, sustainable, it's unrealistic if you're still worrying about retirement. If you aren't able to save as much as you want. If you get your health insurance with subsidies. If you wonder if you'll make rent or ever be able to move out. A lot of us have been there, and a lot of us have people we care about who are there. The reality is financial anxiety is a fast-acting toxin targeting trust. It's a fast-acting toxin, and it targets our trust. Does God care? And Will God care for me? Can I really trust God in this? And the fear we're experiencing can readily have negative impacts, not only on our trust in God, but on who we become. It can cause us to become crotchety. We can't afford to enjoy life, experiences, or people. It can cause us to stay fast and frenzied, which Curtis explored our first week. We can't afford to slow down, and instead we buzz through life. It can cause us to become spiritually cynical. We can't afford to hope. If frenzy has us saying, I can't go on like this. Financial anxiety has us saying, I can't afford to live any differently than this. Now, as we come to scripture today, what I'd like to invite you into is imagining what if. What if this is true? What if God is really like this? What if life with God could really be this way? What if the God who animates these promises is not upset at our financial anxieties, but eager to see us live out of a paradigm that cares about the bigger things of the world? What if we can afford joy and laughter and fun? 
What if we can afford to orient our lives around the things close to the heart of God? What if we can afford to be generous in ways that help others experience joyful sustainability too? Let's dive in, starting with Matthew 6. This is going to be verses 24 to 34. I'm going to read out of the NASB, which is a translation that tends to be a bit more one-to-one literal on words. And so you might find it doesn't feel as smooth as translations you're familiar with. But anytime it's a little bit new, that also helps us here with fresh ears. Let's dive in. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason, I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. That they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather crops in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? What if you are much more valuable than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single day to their lifespan? And why are you worrying about clothing? Notice how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor, nor do they spin thread. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will God not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then, saying, what are we to eat or what are we to drink or what are we to wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and all these things will be provided to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. A few quick notes about this section here. The first being that in English, when we hear the word faith, like Jesus saying, oh, you of little faith, we should always think about trust. Faith is, in this case, a little bit less of a noun, something that we have and we either have a little or a lot of it, and a little more of a verb, something we practice doing, however imperfectly, and sometimes we do it more readily and sometimes we struggle to do it. So what Jesus says about the little faith is more about what the people are doing than believing. They're worrying and scurrying, and yet they are invited to live in a kingdom with a king who says you matter and your needs matter. So Jesus has this really interesting rhetorical contrast that sort of wraps up this thought that Gentiles, pagans, eagerly seek these things, but you seek first God's kingdom. Notably, the first group to try this out together, living as if God was king, we hear about from Luke in the book of Acts, and they practice generosity such that everyone's needs were met. What if God really knows what I need? 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your anxiety on God for God cares about you. What if God really cares about you? Philippians 4, 11 to 13, also from the NASB, Paul writes, not that I speak from need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of being filled 
and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What if God really can strengthen us in times of financial need? What if God knows? What if God cares? What if God can? I've shared before about the campus pastor of my college who would talk about how we would sometimes be held back from feeling like we could approach God because one of three key attributes just didn't feel true to us in the time we were experiencing them. That we found ourselves often wondering, does God really love us? Does God really want what is best? Is God powerful enough? Can God really do what is best? Is God wise Does God really know what is best? And that while God's power, love, and wisdom are infinite and perfect, the reality is that many of us find that doubting one of them creates the effect within us of a three-legged stool that loses one of its legs. It's not stable and it topples. And so too, we sometimes find we can't come to God with our real needs, our anxieties, including financial ones, because we aren't sure what we will find when we do. Today, I want to ask, what if God really can be found as we practice replacing financial anxiety with trust? What if we really can find a way forward in times of little with Jesus? Now, at this point, I really wish I were Joel Osteen, which is not a sentence I ever thought I'd say. But I do because then I could start to promise you a new financial reality His new book assures you that you can persevere for the best that's just ahead. There's a spiritual carrot dangling just beyond your reach. And there's so much that awaits you if you just follow the formula. Or maybe I could be Dave Ramsey and promise you financial peace if you just switch to cash and envelopes and drink less fancy coffee. There is something real, of course, about being able to take action towards financial stability. It's incredibly important for all of us. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how easily these types of messages tie things up with a bow and say that those of us without financial peace are simply doing it wrong. I don't think Jesus is upset at the people who are financially anxious. I think he understands and believes that God can be trusted even beyond their situation. And many of us in our own lives are too close to these kinds of situations to accept tidy, tied up answers. And so instead, I want to offer some ideas and some options. There are practices that are here to help us when financial anxiety threatens a joyful, sustainable life with God. And perhaps one or two of those are right for you now or will be in the future. So here they are. One is the practice of generosity. We may have times we can't afford to give much, but we are always formed whenever we give something. And that's true whether what we give is time, attention, service, or money. It's counterintuitive, but there are times when the very thing we need to do with our financial anxiety is be generous in some way. We're sure we can't afford joyful, sustainable life, and so instead we give, and that practice challenges the lie right to its face. Another practice is Sabbath Because Sabbath is not earned for accomplishment. It's not afforded only to those who can afford it. Sabbath is stopping and practicing that God will take care of us even while we don't work. Sabbath is a practice that invites us to see God taking care of us. I think about how one of the first times we see Sabbath in scripture 
is when God's people are wandering the wilderness and God sends them manna to eat each day, but tells them to only take enough for the day. And then on day six, God sends double, tells them to collect double, and nothing comes on day seven. I wonder if they had to practice both taking just for each day, but also what it felt like to take double and rest on day seven. Another practice that can help us is gratitude, even as simple as keeping a gratitude list. When we notice the things in our life that are good, the things we can be thankful for, it helps fight the lies that financial anxiety send our way that tell us that everything is awful and bad and there will never be enough. We might not have enough of some things, but maybe we do have enough of others. And we notice that when we have some sort of gratitude type practice that we do in an ongoing way. A fourth option that can be helpful is what I'm calling free fun. Many of us live in communities where there are really neat experiences that we can be part of that do not cost us anything. Many of us live in communities where we have parks or sidewalks or even just wide paved roads we could walk on. Some of us live near beautiful places that are publicly accessible like beaches or mountains. When we enjoy things that don't cost us, it helps us remember and resist a narrative that tells us that the best experiences of life are purchased and that we're missing out if we can't afford to purchase them. Two more practices for us. First, unitasking. Unitasking, doing just one thing at a time. It is not a classic Christian practice, but today I dub it a spiritual discipline, the spiritual discipline of unitasking, because you are one person living one day who can do one thing at a time, and what you can do in a day is enough. Research tells us we can't multitask anyway. We're just switching in our brain a lot, which contributes to the frenzy. Unitasking is an intentional discipline to resist maximizing in a really practical way. Finally, there's the practice of secrecy. Christians have been doing this for a very long time. They give without telling a soul. They let it be just between them and God. And often God does really remarkable things within a person who secretly parts with some of their stuff and then shares that with only God. Now, when we were together live, we did indeed do one last practice, and it was simply to pick a word that we picked one word that could be a focal point for joyful sustainability when it came to financial anxiety. We had some time to think about it, but I'll offer you some ideas now if you'd like to do the same. There were words like enough, generous, share. There were words like lilies, birds. And so whatever it might be, having a single word that can be a focal point, perhaps you put it on a post-it, on your dashboard or your mirror, could help call you back to the passages we explored today and the God who says they will take care of us. Finally, I wanted to share one way that our church has practiced this. See, when you start a new church, there's a lot of financial anxiety because you don't necessarily have a lot of resources. And so it is really common for new churches to mark their anniversary by taking an offering that will fund their future ministry initiatives. It's not a bad practice by any means, but it didn't quite feel like a fit for our church. Instead, on our anniversary, we take an offering and we give it away. This year, when we celebrated our anniversary in mid-September, we received an offering of just over $5,600. And we're going to be sending that to our friends who do wonderful work in Peru. 
with the indigenous communities there around their land rights and protections, to Al Otro Lado, who help newcomers to the U.S. navigate our complicated and broken immigration system, and to God's Pantry, who are local here in Southern California, and who not only do food distribution, but who are increasingly creating some really neat pathways for people who are re-entering citizens after incarceration to get stable again. It's part of our collective generosity to resist financial anxiety as a group because we've got each other and we've got Jesus and that can be enough. And so friends, may the God who takes care of the lilies, may the God who houses the sparrows take care of you. Amen.